Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. I look forward to your being with us. In the last episode, we spoke with Mr. Don Clarkson about his experiences growing up in Texas with his aunts and family members. In this part of the interview, I began by asking him about his career and how these lessons have impacted the great work he has done. Those are things that shaped you. Uh, I know, and I heard some of the things you were talking about, you said in your teaching. Um, I know you've had a long and illustrious uh, career. Um, could you share with me a little bit about uh, your background and, uh, and what you've done in terms of group work and your discussion and dramatization you were talking about? Well, first of all, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think any of us really know what we want to do when we grow up. Most of us don't. Uh, but, you know, I had a roommate, not a roommate, across the hall from me at Howard. And he said, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be that. And he became that, that, and that. And I always felt incompetent. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that's a good, good point. That people are driven to succeed, and they have a good idea of what they want to do. So how did you get to Howard? Is that Maybe that's the first place to start. Well, I got to Howard because um, I really wanted to go to the University of Chicago. Okay. Uh, because I knew they had a good sociology department and all that stuff and studied. And then I found out what the cost was. And so that ended the University of Chicago. <laughs> okay. Quickly. Uh, but I did have a, a, a four-year scholarship. I graduated like number two in my class. And so the first four people always got a scholarship. Uh, and this is in, this is in Houston? Is that Booker T. Right. Washington High School? Yes, yes. Okay. And so... After talking with uh, a couple of people, they said, you ought to go to Howard. And my aunts wanted me to stay there and go to Texas Southern because it was there in Houston. Because um, they had economics in their head, but I said, I didn't want to go to TSU. Uh, so I went to Howard and uh, uh, my first year was a real uh, rude awakening in my life as I got there with, I thought I was smart. Then I realized that I was as close to flunking out of anything as I'd ever had. Was my there first are a lot year. of smart people. <laughs> and so as a result, that's how I got to Howard because I had that that seemed like the optimal choice. And I'm always glad to this day that that was my choice. Uh, I had, uh, you know, I worked the whole time I was there. I had enough uh, campus jobs to keep myself uh, afloat. And that really... Uh, was my life for a while. Uh, and I met people who were uh, really influential that I loved to, to be around. Uh, and I was thinking about Dean Nabert at the time, whose brother was, in, was the uh, president of Texas Southern. And there he was there at, uh, at Howard. I said, how, how lucky could that be? But to make, make a long story short, um, 
there was always somebody coming on campus to influence you. And I, I don't know what it's like there now, uh, but you know, I haven't been, I haven't been on that campus since I graduated. That should tell you something. <laughs> so undergrad or graduate school, we're talking both, about. both. Okay. I never went to homecomings, you know, it, which has to do with that separation issue. I think that I struggle with to this day. So uh, since you raised it, what was the real separation? What was the real issue? I don't know. Even with all the years of working on this, that I can be involved with you, care about you, want to be with you, will do anything I can for you. But once that moment is over, that moment is over. But I will always be there. But I don't have the, the sense of wanting to go back and put my arms around you unless I think you need it. Um, and that has been there. And I think that probably has to do with all my separation issues growing up, that each event uh, was separated out. They weren't uh, joined together. And I think that's why I always like group as a way of doing things because that is the one place in the world where you put everything together and you begin to share uh, what people are going through. Um, so you're recognized as a national, if not a world leader in group issues and uh, group work and social work. Um, how was that so important to you? What, you said some of your earlier experiences helped to shape you, but you obviously took it long past that point. Well, yeah, um, but I remember, I'm going to give you this one disappointment in my life about all that. I was there and anything that had a little group involved in it, there was a, um, a religious a student in, uh, in the school of religion who was doing work with alcoholics. And um, he asked me, would you like to come with me? And and, and see what it's like. And I said, yes. And I went there and all the people would come there and the group would be full. This was on the ninth, right there, ninth and O in Washington, DC back then. And okay. ninth and, and O streets, Northwest. Yes. And mm -hmm. boy, I listened to these stories and I got all excited about it and the group would talk. And then I said, this is what I really want to do. It really turned me on. Uh, two weeks later uh, we were called to this place on in northeast called rhode island plaza which was called an elite place for uh black folks to live then and uh, so we were there and all of a sudden this guy said i just want you to know that you're going to have to stop that group <laughs> and wendell said what do you mean stop it he says because they don't come to your group they come there because the bootleggers live in the place where you're living and they came there to get the alcohol. And once you left. <laughs> so you thought that they were talking about ref reforming themselves and they're actually enabling them through the alcohol that was being sold to bootlegging. Got it. Yeah. And they burnt the place down. They told us don't go back and they burnt the place down. <laughs> so, and so, so who is the they at that point? Well, really say. I can't say, but uh, the implication is whoever was sponsoring alcohol in the United States, they were they were one of them. <laughs> I see. So uh, so corruption at a high level, too. Yes, I see. OK, uh, interesting. That did not turn me off from the group because I really enjoyed the group. And I think there was something that stirred me up in that process. 
And that's how uh, I wound up when I finished, when I was out of school trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I saw this ugly yellow brochure on the wall there down in the administration building saying training group therapy, training psychodrama, training sociometry, training role playing. That all sounded nice, but what I saw was stipend. <laughs> that was the, that was the big draw for me. Okay. You're going to get paid for that work. So you were very Yeah, interested. I'm going to love pay to learn. But so, uh, so it seems like it was very successful for you. Um, you made yes. a career out of that work. Yes. Um, can you tell me, uh, you know, how that background has helped you and what you see that uh, perhaps other people might benefit from in terms of group work or dramatization and yeah. what, what, what works for you now? Well, you know, uh, it was funny. Uh, psychodrama has been the foundations of, of my existence, really, in terms of growing. I had a really great group practice with a psychologist there at Howard. Also, you knew Dr. Gump, who was uh, also, we did a training group psychologist uh, in group. And so I was always liked it, but the psychodrama was my foundation. And while I did the others, I, um, I remember when licensing came up for, for Virginia, which I wasn't, I took the license exam and passed it, but they said they didn't like the fact that I did the thing in psychodrama. So I had to redo it. And I said, I'm not redoing it. You had, the question was, how was I going to use this in my practice as a social worker? And they uh, said, well, it's not acceptable. And I said, well, your exam is not acceptable. And so um, they backed off, but that was the end of that. I didn't do it. But I want to say that the issue with the psychodrama is that I, back in 1978, met this well-known lawyer, uh, Jerry Spence, who really was a big-time lawyer. He was probably... Um, most known for many cases and used to commentate on the OJ cases when that was going on. Um, but I did a psychodrama in one of the regional workshops that he was doing. And when he started the trial lawyers college back in 94, he asked me if I would come. And so I went there and then I taught the lawyers using that method um, for their working with their clients and preparing for trial. That's where it is. And I, I think that it's an, uh, a particular model that I just would like to, to get social workers who have a good clinical background to get into. Um, and, and when you say would well, like social workers to get into dramatization. Uh, psychodrama. As a, as psychodrama, a, okay. As, as a modality. Uh, okay. Uh, to be able to use it, their skills. And I think that... Um, they will find that uh, it's life altering for many people. Um, when you say life altering, what, can you explain what you mean? Sure. Uh, well, let's take the lawyers, which I'm beginning, which I work with all the time now. And a lawyer gets ready to present his case, and he knows his case and he knows his facts, but he doesn't know the story. And the problem with that is that they don't know their own story. And the rule of thumb is if you don't know your own story, you can't tell anybody else's story. 
in a, enough to make it be communicated to other people. And so the idea is, is that you teach or get them to explore all the things in their life that has made a difference in their life and to um, enhance what they know about themselves so that they can learn to listen, which I think listening is kind of almost a lost art for some professions. And I think listening is the greatest gift you can give to anybody is to listen to them and hear that story and not hear all the facts about themselves. Uh, it's why uh, talking to you by way of Zoom, I'm always asked to do it, but I, if you hadn't been from Howard, I would have never accepted this invite. <laughs> well, I'm grateful for you having accepted. Well, well, I am because I feel like I can't touch you. I can't see what your hands are doing. I can't smell what kind of cologne you got on any of that stuff, which all affects me. Uh, and I like the total person. If I can't have the total person, I think in this, I can't, but that reflects me. And I want to be able to see if I can find some of my life in you. That's very important to me so that I can go on with it. And I, you know, that's a big handicap I have. And at my age, it's a bigger handicap because that's about all I can do. I have two flights coming up and I, I think I'm going to call it quits for this. Two, two flights for work, you mean? Yes. And. Uh, and so when you do these flights, you are providing testimony or you are helping? No I'm, no, I'm going, first of all, to work with the client. I want to get the client story. These clients come in, and especially Black clients, they do not want to show their, their, their weakness. They do not want to feel helpless. And I think that's the kind of thing I grew up with. You don't show it because it will kill you. And I think at one point in time, that was perfectly the way to do business. But I think in our later life, it's a handicap that you have to be able to share what it is you're going through so people can hear it. And if they can't hear it, they're going to make their own story up about you. Um, so I'll take that client through psychodrama that's going through all the important people, seeing how they act. And this is all in action, never sitting talking with people. It's all in action. And if I don't see the lawyer grabbing the story, then I'll stop and say, okay, let's see where this fits in your life. And then I'll work with the attorney around their life and then see if we can't draw something up between the two. So parallels in terms of the experience, which may in fact help the attorney to have a better feel and understanding for what they're trying to argue for their client. That's exactly right. That, so you can't really tell a full story unless you can understand who you are. I've, I've heard that before. It sounds like that's a very powerful point. Um, so uh, I, I am very grateful for your speaking to me because there, there are some things here that I think um, are, are really quite, quite important. Um, so based on that, um, you, you have some of your most memorable contributions. Uh, what are you most proud of and why? <laughs> oh, what about, well, I think one of the things is that while I was teaching part-time in the School of Social Work, I was a full-time in the counseling service at Howard, but I taught part-time, is that I was not one of the teachers who 
was really good at giving them all of these really hard written assignments from the theories. I made them do it, but that was not the thing I like. I made them do their work on themselves. And, and when I, you say work on themselves, tell, can you explain a little more for me, please? Yeah, one of my classic assignments was, here you are today. It's kind of like what you asked me. Here you are today. How did you get here? And what were the things that you did? And what, what influenced your decisions? Why did you reject certain decisions? Uh, who were the people who made a difference? And can you uh, put that into where you are now and where you're expecting to go? That was always one of the questions that I never, I always made them do is one of their final assignments in life. And if I figured they can't do it, they couldn't hear. And, you know, a lot of students wrote stuff, you know, the kind of stuff you write when you just want to get out of a class. And I've been one of those people who want to get out of a class. <laughs> and they would you never- give, you, give the, you give the instructor what you think they want to hear just to get the grade and get the heck out. That's correct. But- right. uh, And so, so, um, you thought that was one of your most memorable experiences? Oh, I think of all the things is that I think I've talked to some of these students, they've called me back and they have uh, talked about what it meant. Uh, and I think that that is the gift that I have gotten from the students. I always think that the gift is always a gift that you have to receive, not give. Um, so from this, from the point of view impact, I think I have impacted more lawyers in their work and especially their work with minority clients. Um, I've been in the jails, I've been, you know, you name it. And I think I have helped many attorneys give their clients a, a better shake in life. Uh, and that has been one in the course from 94 to today I have seen many, many, many clients and many, many attorneys, and it has a sort of a geometric progression. That's uh, that's 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 very important, almost uh, profound in terms of how you you explain that. Um, if you could change the world, and obviously based upon your work with with uh, trial lawyers, et cetera, you have helped to change the world. Um, but uh, what would you do? Say exactly uh, what you're saying, or is there something else you'd like to give? No, it's what I'm doing. But, you know, I think my, my goals are lofty because uh, I was in uh, Wyoming a couple of years ago. And people had shared life there were lots of tears and group this stuff is always done in groups when you're working with the trial lawyers in groups and they would cry and then when uh one of the sessions is over i asked what this one guy what did he think was important he said well i'm not going to participate with you because i love trump wow <laughs> what did he mean by that well that was i chose not to tackle that because I thought that was going to be a diversion from getting what we needed to get into. But what was bothersome to me is I really liked this guy. And I'm in my what it put in my eyes was is that I really like a lot of people who are on the side of the other other side of that fence. But I can't get to them. And they can't get to me. And uh, 
And my hope is that one day that we can be together. Meaning in terms of helping them or seeing no, their position? Being able what do you to mean? Share and understand one another. Most of the stuff that happens is because we don't really understand. And it's all in the prism that we're looking things through. And that somehow, uh, if this person knew me, I always think of B.B. Uh, King's when he used to sing, To Know Me is to Love Me. Right. Um, I would always think that that would be one of the most joyous occasions in life for me able to be a part of that. I don't know if I will ever see that in my lifetime, but it is certainly something that I would hope for, uh, is that something can set a stage for that kind of e uh, event to happen. Um, you mentioned lots of issues related to uh, civil rights and human rights. Um, uh, which of those in, in context uh, do you embrace as most important? Oh, which do I like better, diamonds or pearls? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the occasion, perhaps. You got it. Uh, you know, I think about, uh, obviously, poverty and civil rights, those things are is the top of the list. I think I still boil down to education. I don't mean just the formal education, but education that we can help people to be able to understand what's going on. Um, you know, I had the for great fortune of, of having Shirley Chisholm. I don't know if you remember her or not. Certainly do. One of the first first black woman to run for Congress and, right. and the presidency. And, she, and elected. Yes. Elected Congresswoman didn't make it in the presidency, but certainly did a lot to change the way people looked at the world. And we, you might you might be interested in knowing that she's one of the folks that I actually think a lot about. And I have this actually little button which says what? Oh, Shirley Chisholm for president. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so we're on the same page there. But go ahead. You were saying, and I, you know, and we were riding in the car because I had a, I was working at the Psychiatric Institute Foundation and my job every year was to bring somebody there who would talk to the issues of, of black folks in particular, but minority in general, and not be bound by just the generalized uh, psychoanalytic based psychiatry. And we were riding in the car and we were talking together and she says, you got to have a little bit more strength. She says, I'm not enough for what you need here. <laughs> and she said that. And, you know, that kind of voice she had. She had a unique voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah she did. Uh, was uh, It sounded almost like it was uh, kind of like a grandmother wanting to talk to you. But then you'd hear this force come through and it'd be like, uh-oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, I'm well aware of that. Uh, yeah, she's one of my sheroes, and I, I, I appreciate a lot of what, what she's done in, in the world. But so you had an opportunity to speak with her, and she told you that. And then what happened? Well, I then proceeded. I became the equal treatment officer for that hospital. And so everything that had to do with the Black folks had to come through me first. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh, so you would uh, what we would now call equity issues. You that they had to come through you. That's correct. And and so uh, did that. Was it successful or what? What happened? Well, then. 
Well, I don't know, but uh, I think it was successful for many Black folks to come to get top of the line treatment at that hospital because there wasn't a lot going on in treatment. And then we wound up getting a, a really good staff of Black folks to be to work in that, that hospital. And so I thought that they did very well. And where was that hospital located? D.C. In Washington, D.C. I don't know what it's like there. That's been years ago. Yeah. Uh, the, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. And they said the other person who is my hero, I work with him all the times, constantly, and that's Milton Grimes. Uh, and he is uh, the lawyer for Rodney King at the time. And so I'm with him as he's fighting constantly to uh, make the trial lawyers college more equitable for all people and feeling that we don't want to deprive any more black folks of things that help them get empowered. And um, he's kind of my close hero, uh, even though I'm a little bit older than him. <laughs> okay. So, uh, my so uh, people know Rodney King for his having stopped during the riots in Los Angeles to say, can't we all just get along, I believe yeah. was one of his comments. That was it. Uh, Why can't we all get along? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I'm reminded of the biblical quote, with all thy getting, get understanding. Um, what understanding would you want to share with others? Um, well, this is this may sound a little nutty, but I'm going to give it to you the way I know how to talk about it. Um, I think that we spend a lot of time being angry. And I don't mind the anger. I think we have to keep our anger. But I think anger is a, first of all, it hides our pain. But people don't hear our pain because they hear our anger. And I'm wanting to understand that anger tells us who we are. It tells people what we believe in, what's important, the things that are not important, uh, et cetera. And so what I want to leave a person is to understand their anger so that it doesn't control them and make these mistakes that keep becoming repetitive in our life. And the idea is that I would like uh, them to use anger as a guidepost to their pain. That's the way I can think of it. The love will come. It's already there in most cases. And the other part about love I want to say is that I really believe that we have been so focused in our life on being loved that we've been loved all the time. But the problem is we want to be loved in a very particular way. And unless we get that love that way, we don't feel loved, even though it's there in abundance. So it's what we're used to or what we want to feel. Uh, say that again. Is it what, what we may want to feel? Is it what we are used to feeling or we feel comfortable with? What, what makes that uh, so important, what you were saying? Well, you know, I've, 
as I've grown up in age, I've had a lot of people drop off the off the pyramid. And, and one of my big pastimes with my wife is we just picked out our grave slot. <laughs> so I'm seeing it. Okay. So that, 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 what, that what sort a, of gives us uh, a reality check about our own mortality. Yes. And of course, I never thought I was going to die. Uh, but I've always told people, you're going to die. But uh, what I'm getting at is that Sometimes I have felt alone. I have felt this feeling that I think has occurred from a deficit in my childhood uh, that I wanted to try to fill it. And sometimes I filled it with things that were non-useful, but you felt good at the moment. Um, and so, but people were loving me. My, my grandfather was loving me, my aunts were loving me and they loved me, but it didn't feel like love at the time. I feel it now, but at the time I felt like they were just being mean. <laughs> so you didn't see the underlying issues. Correct. They taught me how to survive. They taught me how to deal. And incidentally, it's a sad issue. I think women are the most powerful creatures on the face of the earth. I'm going to say that. Maybe that's because of my own bias. You say black women? No, women. I say because of women my bias. in general. Yes, my bias is that the bond that occurs in pregnancy and birth can never be broken, whether it's a good uh, relationship or a bad relationship, but that person stays with you for the rest of your life. Um, and so I. Bond of motherhood. Yes, I don't think you can get rid of it under any circumstance and that to understand it and what it does for you. So for some of us, I think our mothers, well, often I used to go to the jails a lot. The jails would be filled with, with minorities, minorities, and a few of the others, depending on where I was. If I was in New Mexico, a place it would be filled with minorities, with the minority Hispanic. Sure. <laughs> but what I what gleamed on me is that they were mostly men. And that's because I thought the mothers gave these boys a pass that they did not give to their daughters. And when I would listen to that, uh, I think that that was uh, a flaw. Uh, and that if we had been taught to hold the men to the fire the same way he held the women to the fire, the girls to the fire. And I think that's changing over time, but I'm saying that's what I grew up with. Uh, and, you know, it's nothing. So, so the boys were special and yeah. then the men became special, but the women had to carry their weight the whole time. Yes. So um, what are the priorities you think we as persons of color should consider going forward? Oh, why would you ask me that question? I was hoping you would avoid that with me. Um, but I think that we have to still engender in our youth that they hold the future in our lives. I think we have to hold, make them accountable for taking care of others besides themselves, that that, that should be a priority that uh, a gift that was given to you is not really a gift unless it's given to someone else. And the idea is that uh, I want 
our people to give, I don't know how to put this, um, to give them the courage to fight against what I see daily. I hate the damn internet. I hate it. I don't know if I would have made it, if it's truthful with you, with all the Facebook and all the nonsense, because instant gratification is a part of our life and I don't like it. Um, and I think that that stuff does not let us hold on to stuff very long. We want somebody else to solve it for us. And I would like for some way that we can find a way to make social media not so prominent in our life. And I wouldn't have the foggiest clue how you would do that. But I think that's a key issue in our development of our children and in development of the people that are around us. Uh, and so those are the things that I'm hoping for. And I don't know how I can answer your question, but that's kind of where I am in this process. Okay, um, fair enough. I appreciate that. So uh, just a couple more points. I know our time is limited, but um, as a person, um, a social work pioneer, which I, I believe you very much are, and a person who's uh, seen much over the years, um, what words of wisdom about getting older and your experiences might you share with uh, social workers or with just uh, with others? So I'm assuming you, you do a lot of work with geriatrics, right? They're gerontology, right? Yes, that's correct. I work with older persons. I'm a gerontologist by background. So I would like for you to send your students to hear me. <laughs> okay, send them to hear you. Okay. Okay. I, I have moved to a, uh, a senior community, which, uh, so this past year, which is quite different from the way I was living. But I think there are things that I've been learning that I have sort of put on the back burner. That is how much I'm having to give up to be old. Can you explain that for me, please? Well, at one point in time, I had all of my children and grandchildren around me and they listened to me and um, I would want to be around them and tell them old wives tales and stuff like that. I would love them. So you were the patriarch. Yeah, I was something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now uh, Thanksgiving is a perfect example of the problem right now. So all my kids grown, married, living in their own places. When all the Thanksgiving used to come to our house. <laughs> sure. Now they don't. <laughs> so you're going there or how does that work? One, one may come, one may come, but never all together. Uh, and it feels lonely. And I think it's even more lonely for my wife who loves to cook and bake and all of those things. And so... Uh, I think I feel bad for her more than for me because uh, the kids are not there in the, in the usual way. They're nice and they, you know, call occasionally, but it's giving up a way of living that no longer exists. It's beginning to understand that all of those kids and, and all, they have their own lifestyle and that lifestyle is not mine. 
they do things that I would not do. My oldest son bought this home. And I said, but your daughter is in two years will be in college. He said, yes, yeah. so why would you get this big house? And so he put me in my place in about 30 seconds. He said, you did it. That's number one. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one's because I wanted to. <laughs> there you go. That sounds familiar too, right? And so I had to back off of that. But aging has its issues for me. All of a sudden, I feel I have a tough time doing some of the things I used to do. I try to walk a little bit every day, get a couple of miles in, which those miles seem longer than two now. It seems like they're four. Uh, I don't know if one of my kids put it on my, um, uh, uh, what is it, this little thing that comes on, you asked what the date is, uh, what's, uh, I want to say Allegra, not Allegra, whatever it is. Okay. She comes on. Smart speaker. Smart speaker. She comes on at nine o'clock every night. And she says, time for bed. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for this. Um, but now I've got to go back and answer those questions, which you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I welcome the opportunity to talk some more. Uh, I, and I, I think that they are uh, good questions because they share a little bit about who you are, but I think also they provide some context for helping us to understand a lot more about what social work can do for, for people and uh, you're living that. So very appreciative. And thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. You take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology. That's G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Be well and take care.